Hi, this is Bruce Ellis Benson, the host of On Becoming. Today we'll be discussing apologies. Before we dive into that, I'd like to spend just a few minutes discussing why I make this podcast. Up until recently, I was a full-time professor. If you're a regular listener, you know that I've worked at such storied institutions as Wheaton College, KU Leuven, and the University of St. Andrews, among others. When I started doing this podcast last year, I was expecting it to be nothing more than a hobby. But the response has been so overwhelmingly positive, I've decided to leave the academy and focus on podcasting full-time. Not only is it encouraging to see our downloads grow day by day and week by week, but it's also incredibly rewarding to hear from listeners, some of whom are even my former students from decades ago. Often I hear about the unique challenges listeners have faced in the evangelical world. And certainly I'm no stranger to many of those challenges myself. The sad fact is that even in 2023, figures like Bill Gothard have power and sway, and new threats like the brigade of bigots at the Daily Wire have sprung up, spreading their own brand of hate infused with Christianity. I feel strongly that one of the reasons that this podcast is successful is that not only do we provide criticism of figures like Matt Walsh or Bill Gothard, we also show a path, a new path forward, a path that takes at face value the claim that God is love. It's so important to realize that what figures like Gothard and Walsh do is create a world for their listeners. It's a very dark world where threats are everywhere, and the only way to counter them is by way of hatred, violence, and further circling of the wagons. The title of our podcast, Unbecoming, comes from Nietzsche's life motto, Become Who You Are. As beings who constantly change, we are always developing, and as beings who are fundamentally social and relational, those who are around us, both physically and digitally, have a profound effect on how we change. The true danger of people like Bill Gothard and Matt Walsh is that they take the bigoted aspects of conservative Christianity and supercharge them. Rather than making people less dogmatic and more open to inquiry, they close the world of their followers and make them far more dogmatic and sheltered. If you buy into the rhetoric that takes place on their programs, you stop developing. You become static, frozen in a world where darkness is constantly closing in and threats lurk just around the corner. I'd like to invite you to take a different path. Just like Matt Walsh and Bill Gothard, we're creating a world, but one where the spirit of charity is a greater power than the spirit of evil. The only thing that can truly fight radical hate is radical love. Well, what is happening right now is incredibly dangerous. It seems like every day a new story emerges about conservative Christianity tending more towards theocracy and further from the true teachings of Jesus. The best and most Christian response is to be willing to forgive and to offer a path for redemption. As my Catholic friends might say, to hate the sin and not the sinner. But until we get to such a point, we need to put up a fight. We need to argue against hate and for love. We need to call bad theology and bigoted philosophy out for what it really is, yet also show how good theology and more reasonable philosophy can show us a much more progressive path. In short, we need to continue doing what I've been attempting to do on this podcast. 
Perhaps at this point you're wondering how you can get involved. I'm really looking to build a community with this podcast. So yes, I do want to hear from you. Whether it's just a note to let me know that you're listening, or a lengthy critique of a recent or past episode, or anything in between. At the same time, the kind of world building that I'm trying to do doesn't always come cheap. You may have noticed that our podcast is meticulously recorded and edited. Not only is recording equipment and editing software pricey, but this is also my full-time job. I no longer have the stable income of a university professor. So if you can, would you consider helping us build this community? You can help build a community by simple things like liking or following the podcast. If you'd like to contribute financially, you can go to patreon.com slash unbecomingpodcast. You'll see that there are various levels of support possible. Friend of the pod, student of the academy, philosopher in training, disillusioned scholar. The final level is overachiever. Any of these levels will get you access to the Discord server, but each level provides access to additional resources. The student at the academy level gives access to bi-weekly member-only content. Philosopher in Training gives you that plus monthly interactive live streams. If you've signed up on the Dissolution Scholar level, you'll receive a copy of my book, Graven Ideologies. And the Overachiever level includes a one-hour-per-month Zoom session with me in which you can ask questions or make any comments you like. I hope you'll at least consider supporting the podcast in an ongoing way. If you'd like to send a one-off contribution to the podcast, you can do that through PayPal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. And now, on to apology. When Jimmy Fallon, the host of The Tonight Show, asked Donald J. Trump, have you ever apologized, ever, in your lifetime? Trump responded by saying, I fully think apologizing is a great thing, but you have to be wrong. I will absolutely apologize sometime in the hopefully distant future if I'm ever wrong. Our first response here, which has nothing to do with party affiliation, should simply be laughter. Who could possibly think that he or she has never done anything worth apologizing for? As finite imperfect beings, we need to apologize often, and sometimes with abject humility. That we often fail to apologize either adequately or even at all is not merely a minor character flaw. It's a substantial flaw. While I'm very interested in the phenomenon of forgiveness, namely, what is forgiveness and how do you achieve that? I came to see that very little is written on the subject of apology, which is something that is often, although not clearly always, a precursor to forgiveness. It was in the wake of the string of apologies, or rather pseudo-apologies, of the ever-increasing number of serial sexual harassers, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose, L. Franken, etc., that probably many of us thought, hang on a minute, that doesn't sound like a real apology. While some were less awful than others, even the best ones often fell flat. But as we'll see, apologies hard, hard to do, and hard to fully comprehend. We're stepping into difficult waters in broaching the subject of apology. As will become evident, my very basic phenomenology of apology will raise more questions than it provides answers, though I think the answers will become evident as we go along. 
Forgiveness is an overarching theme in both the Hebrew and Christian scriptures. We have an exhortation by Jesus, for example, that here's what he says. If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. But what exactly is involved in such a reconciliation? At the very least, it involves something like an apology, though Jesus here seems to assume that his listener already has an understanding of what an apology entails. Psalm 51 gives us a poignant example of David in effect apologizing to God. But what, we are inclined to ask, did David say to Bathsheba? And what would he have needed to say if it had been possible to say something to someone whose death he had arranged to Uriah? So my question then is, what is a real apology? Although there are some phenomenological work on forgiveness, there is almost nothing on apology. My goal is to lay out some of the groundwork for phenomenology of apology. The title of this episode is, as you can probably guess, tongue-in-cheek, for it indicates that there are multiple ways of avoiding apology, perhaps even when one appears to be apologizing. In what follows, I will, number one, establish a definition of apology, which is more difficult than it might seem, then two, take what I think are five elements of a genuine apology, and three, examine each of these in turn. Time limitations, though, will mean that the first three aspects are the focus of this episode, with the others being the focus for the episode that will come out later this week. Even to approach the topic of apology reveals a basic and, in one sense, unavoidable problem. What I mean by unavoidable here is simply that the definition of apology can never be straightforward and exact. The term apology has a strange melange of contradictory meanings. Classically, it refers to apologia, which is a robust defense of one's actions or beliefs. We have such examples as Socrates' defense of himself in the document called The Apology, and Cardinal Newman's Apologia pro vita sua. Neither of these are apologies apologetic in the contemporary sense of the term. Indeed, apologetics doesn't mean saying you're sorry about your beliefs, but rather giving a robust defense of them. Students often think that apology isn't quite the right title for a dialogue in which Socrates talks about how much Athens needs him and how they should reward him by paying for his expenses. In those students' defense, though, it is only in the late 16th century that we have a record of the word apology being used to denote the opposite of a defense. At least since Shakespeare's Richard III, another meaning of that term has emerged that means virtually the opposite, that is, admission of guilt and expression of remorse. If it were only so simple as to say that one meaning becomes obsolete and a new meaning takes its place. Shakespeare gives us an example an excellent example of the linguistic confusion that the term generates. Only a year after using the term in the modern sense, in Love's Labor's Lost, Shakespeare reverts back to using it in the classical sense. So even he equivocates on its meaning. To make things even worse, there's an additional meaning of the term. The Oxford English Dictionary also defines apology as a poor substitute, as in, this is the example they give, we were served a mere apology for dinner. 
For our purposes, let's call these A1, apologia, or defense, A2, expression of guilt and remorse, and A3, a sorry excuse for the real thing. I'll also refer to A1 as the sort of classic view and A2 as the modern view. I would love to say that we've effectively moved beyond the confusion of A1 with A2, but that is not borne out in practice. Instead, we're left in, in a situation in which most people using this term think they mean it exclusively in the A2 sense, the sense of apologizing, saying, I was wrong and I'm sorry, but often incorporate enough of the A1 sense, the sense where it says, I was okay, I didn't act incorrectly at all, to make their apology sound very problematic, well, at best. It shouldn't be difficult to see that logically the two senses cancel one another out. If I'm apologizing in the A1 sense, basically saying, yeah, I didn't do anything wrong, it's hard to see how I could possibly be apologizing in the A2 sense, in which I'm saying, yeah, I did something wrong and it's my fault. I can't be proudly defending my action at the same time admitting to being wrong and having shame and remorse about the very same action. Of course, the attentive listener will note that the law of non-contradiction also includes something like the phrase, in the same sense, which does open the door to a potentially mixed apology. So that's to say, I might apologize in the I'm sorry sense, the A2 sense, for most of what I've done, but then provide a kind of a caveat that brings in a little bit of the A1 defense sense. As we'll see, this is often, if not always, a bad strategy if one really wants the apology to have a good effect. Generally speaking, the extent to which an apology succeeds in the sense of, I'm sorry, I take responsibility, to that extent it fails in the sense of A1 or the idea of giving a defense for what is done. Conversely, to, to the extent that it succeeds in the sense of A1, to that extent it fails in the sense of A2. When apologies fail, they often turn into A3, which means they become apologies for apologies, a mere excuse for apology. Let me turn to what I think are five aspects of a true or genuine apology. In articulating these characteristics, note that I'm using the gerund form of the verb both to emphasize that these are things that one does and that such action may well be ongoing. So the first thing is understanding what one has done. Usually that means understanding what one has done wrongly. Second, feeling a genuine sense of remorse. Number three, using a set of words or phrases that communicates that sense of guilt and remorse. Number four, convincing the other person that one truly understands one's guilt and is remorseful. Number five, restoring the relationship, which means that the injured party accepts the apology. Well, I do not mean to imply that these items on this list are absolutely necessary. Successful apologies tend to have something like these aspects. As to the elements of forgiveness, that's a topic for next week. In working out this set of requirements, I'll be using Aristotle's idea of phronesis, which is usually termed practical wisdom. Practical wisdom for Aristotle is 
basically what you need to get around in the world. It's the kind of thing that you need in order to brush your teeth or to make toast or uh, to do anything that requires action. It's threefold for Aristotle, and that is it's the ability to know what to do, and then, of course, it's the ability to know how to do it, and then three, and this might sound kind of obvious, but to actually do so. Anything short of right action is not true for anasis for Aristotle. So in other words, if you're, you're thinking, well, yeah, this would be the right thing to do, and I could do that, but then you don't do it, well, then you failed. In the Nicomachean Ethics, he speaks of, and I'm quoting, what is fitting in relation to the agent and to the circumstances and the object. Knowing how to apologize, then, requires a relatively sophisticated understanding of the situation and what is required in that situation. Given what Aristotle says, it's quite appropriate that analytic philosophers working on emotions often to use the term fittingness to speak about an emotion being appropriate to a situation. That notion of fittingness is a guiding one for my thinking here. Well, we'll see that apologies can be quite challenging. It's helpful to remember what Aristotle says at the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics. Each discipline, whether mathematics or ethics, admits to its own degree of precision, so that, and now I'm quoting, it is the mark of an educated man to look for precision in each class of things just so far as the nature of the subject admits. In other words, apologizing is not going to have the precision of a mathematical equation. We would be foolish, not to mention disappointed, if we were to expect this. Indeed, I'm putting forth these aspects of proper apologies as a kind of regulative ideal. Actual apologies may not have all of these qualities or have them in the same degree. Someone might well forgive you without knowing what you've done or without you showing remorse or without you apologizing. However, with that caveat in mind, let's turn to the basic requirements of an apology. In so doing, I'll be going through each of these aspects one by one. I don't mean to imply, though, that this is necessarily a temporal sequence, as if the process of apology goes, you know, step by step by step, one, and two, three. One or more of these aspects may occur simultaneously, though probably not all at the same time. One way of avoiding apologizing is simple enough. Don't do anything wrong. I've already mentioned the question posed by Fallon to Trump. The context for that question was an interview with Anderson Cooper in which Trump asked, clearly rhetorically, why do I have to repent? Why do I have to ask for forgiveness if I'm not making mistakes? To be sure, no apologies are necessary in such a case. Yet this comment does help get us to see something important. How bad does something have to be for you to apologize? Or what is the minimum threshold for an apology being demanded or required? Again, this is less clear than one might hope. One reason for this is simply that the word apology is often applied so loosely that many things count as apologies. I was walking briskly along South Street in St. Andrews and reached Janetta's gelateria just as a family departed. One of the children, about two in age and seemingly suffering from a sugar coma, walked aimlessly in front of me. Her father quickly snatched her in his direction and said with a laugh, Sorry about that. One can hardly hold this little girl responsible, and even the apology by the father wasn't really necessary. 
It's hard to take offense at such an action. Similarly, we apologize for nearly bumping into someone on the street, perhaps even to someone so buried in his cell phone that actually it's really his fault, and for myriad small things like this. I've seen research that indicates that people in the United Kingdom apologize a lot. As a Canadian, I think this is also true of Canadians. Much of the time, such apologies merely grease the wills of getting along with others. They're said instinctively and without much thought. One might want to say that they don't quite count as apologies. Simply to say nothing in such cases makes one seem not so much bad as inept at getting along with other people. I was boarding a plane in Edinburgh and putting my bags up in the overhead bins when I noticed that the person beneath me was glaring at me. Did I bump her arm? I don't think so. Perhaps it was just the activity over her head that she didn't much like. What does one say in such a case? I'm sorry. For what? On the other hand, some people over-apologize. They're constantly saying they're sorry for the most trivial things. The rest of us just wish they would stop. However, it may not be as simple as that. I remember someone approaching me very apologetically and humbly repenting of something she'd said. The more she went on apologizing, though, the less it was clear to me that she had done anything worth apologizing for. Sometimes one says, it's nothing, as a way of accepting an apology. But in this case, at least for me, it really was nothing. But it wasn't for my friend. So we're left with a question. Was the problem that this person apologizing was overly sensitive? Or was it that I was underly sensitive? I think I may have an answer for that later. As Aristotle's phronomos, the person who has phronesis, the person who's really experienced, as that person knows, the answer to the question, when do you need to apologize, is of course going to be highly context-dependent. For people who know one another well, an apology for something small may be quite unnecessary. If it's already understood that each person respects the other when they're in the way of one another in the kitchen, for instance, simply laughing might be appropriate. There really isn't much to apologize for. In other cases, the misdeed is fairly evident. I mispronounced your name. I said something that was unkind. I forgot that your birthday is today. Again, though each of these is context-dependent, if I've only met you once and you have an uncommon name, I probably don't need to apologize. If I've known you for a decade, this is considerably more serious. I was at a conference and someone that I barely knew approached me. I drew a blank, not just about his name, but even who he was. His response, disgust. Despite the fact that I apologized profusely, we have never spoken since. I've chosen this example because it might at first seem very trivial. The problem with over-apologizing would seem to be that one apologizes for things that are too trivial or even that one cannot control, such as the weather or that one is delayed by traffic. Yet forgetting someone, either name or face, is often less trivial than one might expect. It can be taken as an affront to someone's very dignity. That's why, if there's any doubt regarding whether someone will remember my name, I often approach them by saying something like, Hi, John, I'm Bruce. We met last year at the philosophy conference. Doing so relieves the other of the burden of remembering and helps prevent an awkward situation. After all, if I remember them and they forget me, am I the superior one and they the inferior one? Or is it the other way around? But I've also used the example because it gets at something else that's problematic. 
My own take on forgetting this person's identity is that it simply happens when you're interacting with literally hundreds of people at a conference. But that wasn't his take. However, this leads me to ask, am I just hardened by having to learn about 70 names per semester for over two decades that I think, hey, this is the best I can do? Or should I feel more of a sense of guilt? Am I avoiding apologizing? Just to be clear, I'm assuming here that apology is a two-way street. I can apologize, but the other has to accept that apology for there to be a successful apology. Yet there's another sense in which this might be a two-way street. Perhaps both people involved need to be attentive to the possibility and often reality that the other person simply doesn't see it in the same way. In short, there's a hermeneutical problem. As I was thinking about this problem, it occurred to me that Mary Tyler Moore's character in The Dick Van Dyke Show says something pertinent to this question. I've been unable to find the quote from her, but I found it from some other characters in the show. Van Dyke's character arrives at the office clearly shaken. One of his colleagues assumes that he and Moore's character had a fight and asks, what was the beef about? Van Dyke responds, I don't know. We didn't fight long enough for me to find out. To which his colleague responds, oh, one of those. And then continues in jest, and if you don't know, which he and then Van Dyke continue in unison, I'm certainly not going to tell you. While this joke certainly trades on sexist notions, I think it gets at something important. In many cases in which one has been wronged, such a person may think that the other person should simply know how one has been hurt and the extent of the harm done. To be sure, in many cases, the extent of wrongdoing is fairly obvious. If you call someone an idiot, it doesn't take a great deal of subtle analysis to see why and how this is wrong. But again, this is also context-dependent. If the other person is already feeling belittled by you or others, the actual hurt inflicted by saying that may be much greater than one could suspect. In speaking of his department colleagues, a friend of mine said to me one day, I don't think they will ever understand that they hurt me. In this case, it isn't even a question of how much, but simply realizing that they had hurt him. Knowing a situation from the point of view of my own situation, I had to agree with him that such understanding would likely never happen. His colleagues were not actively avoiding apologizing, but they in effect avoided because they didn't understand or didn't want to understand the effects of their actions. Such an instance immediately raises the issue of culpability. After all, people can be culpably ignorant, which means that you should have known. In my judgment, his colleagues should have known what they were doing, at least enough to know that they should stop. It's not at all without reason that we, at least generally, think those who have hurt us should be able to figure out what they've done and how it's hurt us. But in many cases, other people may not be able to put themselves into one's own position sufficiently to be able to see things from one's point of view. This can mean that they simply don't apologize, or else they offer an inappropriate apology. Here's where I think that there might need to be something that I will call a preliminary apology, something that even precedes an actual full apology in which one admits wrongdoing, but likewise asks for clarification. To be sure, a preliminary apology can go terribly wrong, since it can look like one is trying to avoid apologizing. Yet I, here I'm not talking about the 
if I've hurt anyone, I'm sorry kind of response, which the comedian Harry Shearer has turned the if-pology. Such a non-apology simultaneously denies any guilt and implies that those who've been hurt are just too sensitive. I'm talking about the kind of apology that admits up front to being wrong and doesn't try to downplay the wrong. So it's only A2, as in I'm sorry, not A1, as in I wasn't doing anything wrong, but still expresses a lack of complete understanding of what has been wrong. It may only be in light of what the wrong person says at this point that the wrongdoer is able to give a proper apology. It should be clear by now that I think understanding exactly what one has done wrong is often not as simple as it might first appear. But I want to link the admission I was wrong to another admission. After I had been working on the difficulties of apologizing, I remembered a podcast of Freakonomics called The Three Hardest Words in the English Language. According to them, those words are not I'm sorry, but I don't know. The podcast and chapter from the book Think Like a Freak of the same name begins by citing a study of British school children who are told a short story and then asked four questions. The first two questions are ones that the short story answers, but the next two aren't. Despite that, 76% of the children gave yes or no answers to questions that had no answer. The authors go on to point out that this tendency persists into adulthood. And as an example, they point out that people who really are experts in regard to certain sorts of things often overestimate their abilities in areas that they don't know that much about. And academics are, alas, great examples of this. I can think of a famous philosopher who clearly thinks his opinions on just about all things are just as good as his philosophical opinions. Their conclusion is that the problem is dogmatism. What they don't seem to realize, though, is that this problem had already been identified by Socrates, who often interacts with people who claim to know but don't. The dialogue titled Euthyphro is a classic example of that. In contrast, Socrates often says that he doesn't know, and the resulting Socratic doctrine of ignorance is the idea that if you're going to learn anything, you first must admit that you don't know the answer. That's all for today's episode. In the next episode, we'll conclude our discussion of apology and the art of apologizing. I hope you've both learned from today's podcast and also have new insight into what it means to be in communion with other people. If you benefited from today's episode, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through PayPal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.